All right, good morning, New Wave. Can we greet one another in the way that we always greet each other? Can we turn to the person next to us or around us, give them a high five, and say, we're all in this together? Now, the reason that I always have us say this is to remind each other that no person is an island, but that we are one family united together in Jesus Christ. And it's because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross that we are here together as one. And so uh, what's happening right now is, is, is that next week, as you uh, heard in the announcements, uh, what's happening is, is that October is our church's missions month. And so we'll be focusing on this theme of heading toward the final frontier of missions. And so this morning, we're actually concluding our series on radical faith. And the message that uh, I'm going to be sharing this morning is a message that most pastors, in a sense, kind of dread. They feel as if this is one of the most difficult messages that they can give to their congregation. And so this message is on giving tithes and offering. Now, if you don't know what tithes and offering is, is that I'm going to uh, explain that in detail. But I want to begin by asking a series of questions before we go into the definition of what tithes and offering is. So I just want to begin by asking who here maybe loves to earn money by working hard. I want you to raise your hand. If you love to earn money by working hard, okay, uh, a few of you, then let me ask, how many of you love to receive money for free, you know, whether it's uh, through the culture of receiving a red envelope, a uh, hongbao, or for those uh, who are Korean, it's called sebedon, uh, and those, uh, I want to ask who then lastly loves to give money away for free. Anybody raise your hand if you love to give money away for free. Oh, wow, okay. There's a few people raise their hands. Make sure to take a look and to remember them after service and to go and talk with them. <laughs> but I believe that every single week uh, that we have something that maybe for some of us uh, don't understand or even question that we have this practice of a time of giving tithe and offering. And so some of us, again, maybe are confused. And so I want to share what it is that we actually do, that this is not just some, again, tradition in which we follow, but ultimately this is what we see the Word of God speak about when we talk about tithes and offering, that the Word of God talks about this. And so uh, we're going to begin by just simply looking at the definition of tithe. So if we take a look, tithe literally means a tenth, and it's a regular practice that involves giving a fixed amount of our income, 10% to God. And then what's offering? So tithe is different from offering, and a lot of times people get confused with the difference between what's giving tithe and what's giving offering. Offering is different, and offering is anything extra that you give on top or beyond the tithe that you regularly give. And so this is actually determined by the worshiper, whether or not you want to give extra above what you regularly give, whether it's to church, whether it's to someone specific outside a different ministry, um, that it's on top of what typically people give, what we call 
a tithe. Now, many uh, believers and even pastors, once again, believe that the pastor shouldn't be necessarily preaching on this topic because there's a sense of maybe where what the pastor or the church desires ultimately is money. But that's not the case. It's where people may feel as if the pastor is always talking about giving and offering and giving tithes is maybe, uh, in a sense, a tel- like a televangelist or is like a, uh, like a, what do you call it, a snake oil salesman. And so many times pastors, I believe, are not comfortable speaking on this topic to their congregation, especially in terms of money matters. But I believe that it's important for us to talk about tithing, and offering because the Word of God speaks to something about this issue beyond just giving money. You see, the church is actually a place, I believe, that is very reluctant, uh, different from what maybe is the popular understanding or demand that members a lot of time are asked to give and to constantly give. I believe the church is actually more reluctant to talk on this issue. That typically when you actually at a church maybe would hear this topic on giving tithes and offering is at the end of the year when in the budget we're in the red, we fall short, and we don't have money to maybe give to the staff or to pay the staff. And we're like, oh, pastor, you have to give a sermon so that people would give more money in order to have the church continue to run. But I believe that I'm speaking on this topic not, I want everybody to know, not because uh, we're not doing well financially. That's not the reason. It's not because we're in the red, but because the Word of God speaks actually about our relationship with our physical wealth to actually our spiritual health, that the two are closely tied and knit together. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the Gospels, actually one out of six verses deals with money. Out of the 29 parables Jesus tells over half, exactly 16 deal with a person and finances. And so this question arises, why does Jesus talk so much about money? It's because I believe that Jesus understands that more than anything in this world that possibly money has an ability to control us. Uh, If we take a look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 21 through 24, this is what Jesus says. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That you cannot serve both God, and in the original language it says mammon, which is in a sense the God of money. And so now Jesus never says here that actually money is evil or that the root of all evil is money. But Jesus knows that money has this effect upon our hearts that it's able to actually control our lives in terms of where actually money in a sense that we serve money rather than money essentially serving us. And so this is not just a modern issue that we're dealing with in terms of a system of fiat currency, but it spans even before any understanding of a barter system all the way actually to the beginning of creation. When God creates the world in Genesis chapter 2, he actually gives this charge to Adam and Eve, and he says to them that I want you to be good stewards of all of creation, of everything that I give to you, that you are to be a good steward. 
And so through Adam and Eve, we actually also receive this charge to be good stewards of everything that we've been given, everything that we've received over all creation that God actually charges us to have dominion over everything. Now, before going into the definition of stewardship and what it means to be a good steward, I actually want to share a survey with you. And so the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics took a survey asking their followers this question. What they asked was, what does stewardship look like in our daily lives today? And so what they found out was something that they found to be very disturbing or something that was unfortunate. And this is what they found. They found that many Christians today only associate the idea of stewardship, of tithes and offering in regards to church budgets and building programs. That's what believers in their study found out that when they think of stewardship of tithes and offerings, that it's only in terms of giving money to fulfill church budgets and building programs. So why do believers think that this is what stewardship is about? I believe that it's because we've lost actually the meaning of what the Word of God teaches and says about stewardship, about money, and that the church actually doesn't speak on this. And I want to actually share with us this morning what actually the Word of God teaches and what the Word of God says. Now, the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics fundamentally says that the principle of stewardship is this, that actually God owns everything and we're simply managers acting on God's behalf. That God owns everything, but we're simply managers or administrators acting on God's behalf. So ultimately, stewardship was never meant for ultimately to be used for budgets and buildings. But stewardship was actually considered an act of spiritual worship. That stewardship is spiritual worship. And so how we steward the resources that God has given to us gives actually glory to God. So not only that, but it helps us to see the condition of our spiritual lives because our main issue is not ultimately about money but it's about our hearts. And so I'm going to share with you this morning how the two are connected together. Because ultimately what Jesus desires is not our money, but what Jesus desires is our hearts and a relationship with us. And there's something that is tied closely together with money and with our hearts. Now, as I mentioned before, the idea of stewardship begins in the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 2, where God tells Adam and Eve to work, to cultivate, to take care of the Garden of Eden. And so even though they didn't own, in a sense, any of creation, God actually puts all of creation in their care to have dominion over it. And they instructed them to be good stewards with what God has entrusted to them. Even though God gave them every tree to eat from the Garden of Eden, we see that Satan actually twists what is good, what God has given to man and the Word of God. So instead of actually Adam and Eve focusing on what God gave to them, what God gave to them was pretty much everything except for one thing. God says, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, look, I've given you everything in all of creation. I'm just asking you one simple thing, only one thing. Just don't eat 
of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what happens is Satan, who is the deceiver, is able to deceive Adam and Eve and to flip this narrative where actually Satan says to Adam and Eve to focus not on what God has given you, but focus on what he hasn't. And Satan is able to deceive Eve to focus on something where he's saying that God is withholding something that is good from you, that God is not for you, that God doesn't want to give you what is good, but there's something good that God is withholding from you that he doesn't want you to have. And so what happens as a result is that both Adam and Eve, they take and they eat what doesn't belong to them. I don't know if you see how this is connected with stewardship. You see, there's this question, actually, that we're faced with when we come before God. This question of what belongs to God and what belongs to me. So there's a couple of questions that we are faced with that I want to raise. It's this question of do we believe that everything that we have, do we believe that that belongs to me? Or do we acknowledge and say that everything that I have actually belongs to God? Do we believe that whatever offering or tithe that I give is actually giving to God what is mine and what I've worked for and what I've earned? That God, I'm giving you a portion of what is mine. Or do we believe, God, I'm actually only giving back a portion of what is yours. Giving back to you what belongs actually rightfully to you. Do we believe that what we have belongs to God and that we're actually called to be good stewards of what has been entrusted to us? Or do we believe that we are called to be good stewards with what actually belongs to us, that what I have is because this is mine? So we have, in a sense, this image that the church of God is this place where it constantly demands to give, to give more, who are constantly asking that on top of what you're giving, that that's not enough. Thinking that God is this God who's a megalomaniac, constantly wanting more and more. That God is demanding at least 10% of what belongs to me. Is this what we think? But in actuality, what is it that God teaches from the very beginning of creation? That actually 100% of all of creation belongs to me, and actually I'm letting you keep 90%, and all I'm asking is actually for 10% of what actually belongs to me. You see, why does God even ask for 10%? Because God actually doesn't need our money, but ultimately God wants us You see, um, last week I went to this leadership summit and it was very interesting and fascinating. The keynote speaker was talking about how he actually mentors and even disciples uh, a lot of these high-capacity leaders uh, within the Bay Area. And then he was talking about where he was having this conversation with one of uh, these, uh, in a sense, maybe CEOs. And he was asking him, uh, and they're having a discussion uh, about, you know, stewardship. And so when he talked with him, he was very surprised because this uh, person was actually sharing. He says, you know, I have to be very honest with you that when I look at my bank account and when it starts to reach close to about $2 billion, I start to get nervous. 
And then uh, the keynote speaker was just like, what? Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. And then he talked to another high-capacity leader, and then he was sharing also, yeah, me too. I get so nervous when my bank account reaches about 100 million. Then I start to worry. And then he's just like, I can't believe this. I just started chuckling like, and laughing, like, just, this is so absurd. I can't believe this. But then at that very moment, he was sharing how he was convicted in his own heart that it's not necessarily the amount, but recognizing and acknowledging that we all have a number. He says that I have a number, that whatever number, in a sense, our account reaches, we start to get nervous. And this question arises within our hearts that stirs within us whether or not we're willing to let that go and to give it to the Lord. You see, this is why I believe, in a sense, We need to look at the word of God because Satan tries to deceive, to twist our thinking that God, in a sense, is withholding from us what is good and that God actually has what is best for us. And it's not what this world offers and it's not money, but it's all actually God that we live not on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord? Do we believe that it's actually through our works and through money that actually supplies and feeds us and gives us life? Or do we trust and say that no, it is God and his word that ultimately sustains us? And so what we see immediately after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, is the first time that the word actually offering is used. And it's God who is the one that actually gives or makes the first offering. And this is what we see is that after the fall of Adam and Eve, what does God have to do? He has to make clothes out of animal skin for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness and their shame and their sin. And the understanding for the language that's here in terms of garments and skin is the necessity for a sacrifice that an animal needs to die in order to use that skin to clothe Adam and Eve. And so this is, in a sense, a precedence for why, in a sense, we give offering. We give because, actually, God gave first, and he gives this example that even though Adam and Eve didn't deserve, actually points us back to the garden, reminding us what God has done to restore man's relationship with him and with one another. And ultimately, it doesn't just point us to the garden, but what we understand is is that the sacrifice in the garden that God makes is actually a foreshadow of ultimately the greatest offering that God would make through his son Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin and death. That it's through the blood that Jesus sheds that covers over our sins. And so we continue to see following in chapter uh, 4, verses 3 through 5 in Genesis, that this word offering is mentioned and it is used. And Cain and Abel, we see who are the offspring of Adam and Eve, that it's implied that they're the first sons. And then what we see as we continue to read is, is that as they bring their offerings, that God accepts Abel's offering, and he rejects Cain's offering. You see, Cain was in charge of working the ground. He was, in a sense, producing fruit and 
potentially vegetables, while Abel was there to tend the sheep and animals. And so the Bible isn't explicit as to why God was pleased with Abel's offering and was displeased with Cain's offering, but there's certain clues in which we can take educated guesses where scholars believe that Abel actually brings his best. He brings the firstborn amongst the flock in which he's raised. And so he's giving the best portions, the first portions to God as an offering. But Cain doesn't do this. It doesn't mention that he does the same thing. It doesn't say he brings the first fruits of what he actually labored and toiled and raised from the ground. It doesn't say he brought his best, but it says in a sense he brought some of his offering to the Lord. And there's this contrast between Cain and Abel. Now, I don't know if any of you here are farmers. I know that there are maybe one or at least two. Uh, I don't know what's harder, whether or not it, to raise animals or to raise uh, fruits and vegetables. But I know that a few months ago, uh, we had a church member give our family a whole bunch of like duck eggs. And I remember our family trying to raise it, and it was just so much work. Like every single night for like about a month or so, like our kids and my wife were constantly having to like turn the eggs around as it was uh, being heated. Um, I don't know, whatever, incubator or whatever you call it. And it was a lot of work. They didn't get sleep. They had to constantly do that, or the ducks actually uh, wouldn't survive. And after a month of that, they hatched, and then our kids and my wife also had to constantly take care of them all day long. They're constantly chirping, like we can't sleep. They actually had to give a bath to feed and to do all of this work. And so I was really shocked and surprised because actually for about a month that as we were raising these ducks or these ducklings, none of them died. The reason why I was so shocked was is that when we tried to raise plants, pretty much for I don't know how long uh, that, like, uh, that I've been married for 15 years, every single time we got a plant, it always died. Within just like a, even a couple of days, it would always die. And so no matter how hard we would try to raise even a plant, they would just constantly die. The one exception that we have is actually this supernatural spider plant. We had received a gift from uh, one of the members here. And that when we first moved here, it's still alive. And I, every time I see it, I'm like, I can't believe this. Like, this is probably the one thing that I'll see in eternity when I'm in heaven. This is one thing that just doesn't die, that no matter what abuse it takes, it's still alive. But anyways, as I think about this, I can imagine for Cain, possibly what he's feeling and thinking, that after all of this hard work in trying to produce these crops, now it's a time where he needs to bring that before the Lord and to give this as either a tithe or offering. And how difficult is that for him? That this is something that I worked for. I've toiled so hard that this belongs to me. And so Cain possibly withholds what is best for himself, giving his seconds to God, recognizing and acknowledging that this belongs to him and not to God. And so God, knowing this, asks Cain a question. And very similar to his parents, Adam and Eve, just as they were asked this question by God, where are you when they, when they sinned and did what, was, what wasn't right? When they were disobedient, they hid. And God then says to them, where are you? And so Cain is also asked by God in Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, why are you angry? 
Not only does he ask him, why are you angry? But later what we understand and see happen is that Cain, as he's jealous or bitter or angry and upset, he ends up killing his younger brother. And then God asks Cain, where is your brother? And so the purpose of the question wasn't necessarily to scold or rebuke Adam and Eve or even Cain, but God wanted them to face their sin and to repent because what ultimately God desired was a relationship. But like father, like son, Cain doesn't look at what he's done wrong. But what he does is he hides the truth and he shifts the blame. And in both instances, what God desired is not ultimately sacrifice, but obedience. And then when we disobey, God desires ultimately our hearts for us to actually turn away from ourselves and turn to him. And so this is the purpose actually of offering And then when we understand, when we come before God and we're giving what we've worked for, that we come across this question and this sense of when we're giving our offering to God, does this belong to me or does this belong to God? Is God the one who has given this to me or it's because of what I have done and what I have worked for? And now, so the question arises then as I share this distinction between offering and tithing, that then what is the point of tithing? And this is what we see where tithing first appears in the Bible in Genesis chapter 4. And so all of this is in the very beginning of Scripture. It's in the heart of the Word of God in the very beginning, and it's connected to Abraham, who's the father uh, of the Jewish faith. And then he comes across a king and a priest called Melchizedek. And so what happens is that Abraham fights this war against four other nations and he wins. And ultimately then he meets out of nowhere this king named Melchizedek who ultimately presents bread and wine to Abraham and his weary soldiers. And then he gives a blessing upon Abraham and then Abraham presents to Melchizedek a tenth, an offering of all he has. And he gathers what he has and he gives to him this tithe. And so even though this tithe was given only once, it's interesting because this is not in response to the law. So prior to this, there was no law that said you need to give 10% of what you have or what you earn or the spoils of war or what you produce, whether it's in livestock or fruits, that this is not present, but yet he gives us as a free will offering. And this question arises is, where does he have this understanding Where does he give this and present this? Why is it that he does this when he didn't, in a sense, have to? What we see later is is, is that in the Mosaic law, that this is where, in a sense, that there's an establishment of giving a tenth of from what is seen in what Abraham does, that it now becomes enacted as a law to give actually, to those who don't have. Because the other tribes of Israel, what happens is, is, is that they were allowed to work and to earn wages, but for the Levites, they had a specific job and a specific uh, profession, which was dedicated to the administration of the tabernacle and the temple, that they were priests who were uh, to actually perform all these religious rites that were necessary for the Jewish people. And so they didn't earn any wages. And so the tithe became a way that it provided for the Levites and the priests. 
And so the tithe not only supported the priests and the Levites, but it was also there to provide for anyone else who was in need within the community, for those such as widows, orphans, and even strangers, those who were foreigners who left everything behind. And so even though tithing was mandatory, there was this spirit of tithing that comes from the example of Abraham who gives freely and not under compulsion this offering, and yet he sets, in a sense, 10% of what he gives. And so why this is so significant is because what Abraham is doing here in the text, as he's giving this tithe and his offering, he's not necessarily giving this to an earthly king or an earthly priest, but if you really look at the text, what we understand is, is that Melchizedek is, in a sense, a Christ figure, a pre-incarnate figure of Jesus Christ. And so when Abraham is giving, in a sense, this free will offering and this tithe, there's this understanding that he's not giving this to man, but he's ultimately giving it to God. Um, uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, I've been married for 15 years. And I remember 15 years ago when uh, um, my wife and I, we had our wedding. We had it in Chicago, and it was at the church that I grew up in, uh, in Chicago. And uh, there was one thing that I had uh, asked the church uh, for that wedding day. I just simply said that there's a lot of plants, a lot of green plants on the stage. If you can just clean that up before our rehearsal or wedding day, you know, I would appreciate it. And with that, you know, we just need a wireless mic. And that's pretty much it. That's all that we ask. And then guess what happened on the night of the rehearsal before the wedding day? Nothing was clean. And there was no wireless mic. And so like past midnight, the groomsmen and I were just trying to clean up the stage. My brother ended up waking up at like 6 a.m. in the morning to look where he can purchase a wireless microphone set. And he bought one for like $500. And I was so angry and I was so upset. I was like, this is my wedding day. And this is something that I asked was nothing that was over the top, something that was very simple. And then the church didn't even do that, fulfill that. And then later I remember my mother telling me, that as a free will offering, she gave $700 for using the facilities for that wedding day. And I was outraged. And I said, you need to get that back. I said, how dare they actually take that money? They didn't do anything that we asked for. How can you give that money to the church? They didn't do anything. And back then, $700 was a lot of money. And then my mom said to me, she said, Tony, you know why I gave that $700? And she said, I didn't give it to the church. You have to understand this. And she said, you know, I never thought that you would ever get married. I never thought that any woman would marry you. Not alone that, but, you know, God actually you know, gave you such a beautiful wife. I was like, what? I was like, okay, thank you. And then she said, you know why I'm giving it? She said, because I'm not giving it to the church, but I'm giving that to God. When I heard that, I was convicted. I was, in a sense, floored. That was the godliest thing I've ever heard my mom say. Because in my mind, up to that point, whenever I give offering, or whenever even in the sense of my wedding day, everything that I gave was this understanding and this concept that I was only giving it, in a sense, to the church or to people or because of what they do, because of the wages that they earn. And if they didn't deserve it, then they shouldn't get it. But there's something that's different in which my mom, when she spoke and shared to me this understanding that God spoke to me at that moment, saying, when I give, who am I ultimately giving it to? 
Am I giving it to the church or to somebody else? Or do I have this understanding that I'm giving it to God? See, what God desires ultimately is a relationship with us. And the giving of offering and tithes is a way in which we confront ultimately what Christ has done for us on the cross. So who are we giving when we give, when we serve? Who are we serving? Is it a person? Is it ourselves? Is it a cause? Is it the church? Or ultimately, do we give and do we serve because we do it for God? Finally, we come to the very end of the Old Testament as we look then at the last book, which is Malachi. So from Genesis to Malachi, this is what we see. Just as the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we see that God calls man to be good stewards. And at the very end in Malachi chapter 3, once again, God gives the same charge to his people to be good stewards of what God has entrusted you with. And so let's take a look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Now, before we dive deep into the text, it's important to mention that from the very beginning of Malachi in chapter 1, verse 2, God begins in this letter or in this book by saying, I have loved you. So everything that we see from this point on throughout Malachi and what God is speaking and saying, ultimately, he's saying that I love you. And this is where it's coming from. And then we see later in chapter 3, verse 6, that God says that I, the Lord, do not change. And therefore, his love for us that is sacrificial, unconditional, that God throughout history in the past, present, and future does not change, that he is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so there's nothing that has changed about who God is. That what we see in the very beginning of creation in Genesis and what he does with man and woman, that it's the same at the very end in Malachi until this day today. It's the same God. And whatever God asks of us is the same thing he has always asked from the very beginning. That what he desires and what he asks is for a relationship with us. And we see this in verse 6 and seven, that despite how often we change our minds, that this is what we see in Malachi for six and seven, that even though we sin and we turn away from God and we break covenants with God, that we don't keep our promises, but God assures us that he is not like us, that God says, I do not change, I keep my promises and I keep my covenants that God's grace, his mercy, and his love remains the same, and he promises us that he will forgive us if we would only turn back towards him, to return to him. You see, this is the key point, is, is that if we return to him, he will return to us. If we turn away from the things of this world and we turn towards him, he will turn towards us. And so what we see then at the end of verse 7 is that there's a question that is raised. Then how are we to return to God? Then in verse 8, we see this question then is raised back as it implies in a sense that the people of God, is, the people of God are stealing from him. And it says, will a man or mere mortal rob God? And it's this question, this rhetorical question, how is it possible can a person steal from God? And the answer is yes. God says, yes, you are robbing me. 
You see, rather than seek God's forgiveness, they claim their innocence by crying out in ignorance, how are we robbing you? I don't understand, God. How are we robbing you? Then God says to them directly, it's in tithes and offerings. And then he says in verse 9 that you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. And then God says in verse 10 something that is very shocking. At the very end, in the last book of the Old Testament, God tells his people, test me. I want you to test me. See, there's three times in the Bible, two times in Malachi and one other time, where actually the word test is used, where where test is used in a way that is very negative. But there's only one time, and in this time here specifically, where God is actually asking his people to test him, that this is a good thing. So now how do we test God? Once again, God says it's through tithes and offerings. And this is really radical because actually in no other belief system or religious system do you find a God who says, test me. Christianity is actually one of the only, if not the only, religious belief where actually the faith is open to testing to see whether or not the word of God is true and what God says is true. And so here in Malachi chapter 3, God says, test me and know that I am God and that what I say is true. And so this question arises for us. When was the last time we actually tested God in this way through our tithes and offerings? Now, I don't believe that God is saying here that we necessarily need to give up everything that we have. But God is saying, in a sense, to return to me or to bring back what belongs to me. I'm not asking you to give more than you can, but simply to give back what belongs to me. What God desires is not necessarily the tithe, but our hearts And the tithe is a reflection actually of our hearts and the spiritual condition of where we're at. Because when we come actually to a time of offering, I know that we don't pass anymore this offering plate. But the idea of that offering plate is this idea when it comes before us. What is it that we have and how much are we willing to let go in order to receive what God has to give to us? Do we in the midst of the time of offering, believe that what we have and what we hold on to is ours and this is what sustains me, feeds me, gives me life? Or are we able to let go and say, no, it is you? God says that if we would bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, then God says that he will stop the curse that is plaguing families and nations and the people And he says, instead, I will pour out so much blessing that there won't be enough room to store it. And he says in verse 12 that all the nations will then call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. And so when does this happen? It happens when we return to God. This question is whether or not we believe this. Um, Many years ago, uh, when my wife and I were doing ministry, uh, in another state, uh, we had purchased our first house. And the only way we can purchase that house 
uh, we barely purchased at home um, was through a tax incentive where if it was a first-time buyer that you were given $8,000. But the stipulation is, is that you need to keep the house for at least two years. And then after a couple of months of purchasing this house, my wife and I, were, we came across uh, uh, something that actually where we had to give up the home. And it was a question of whether or not we were willing to come before God and to let go and say, God, that we'll let go of this house we had just purchased. And ultimately, through God speaking and through convictions in our heart, we let go. And I remember that when that had happened, that we were just crying and thinking that uh, at that time um, that we didn't have any source of income because of the decision that we had made to leave the church prior, that there was nothing that was coming in as a source of income, and there was a mortgage that we had to pay that we could, couldn't afford. And we're saying, how are we going to even transition out of this state? And then something happened that we were surprised. That out of nowhere, someone knocked on our door, and they said, you know, a couple of people heard about the situation that your family is in. And a couple of people had gathered together and we started praying. And we don't know what happened, but as we were praying for you and your family, that people just opened up their wallets and they gave money. And this is just an envelope for your family that we just want to give to bless you. And then when we opened it and we looked at the amount, it was exactly three months worth of the mortgage that we were to pay in order for us to transition out that we saw God provide for us, that when we were able to let go and trust in God, that God was faithful to bless us more abundantly than we can ever ask or imagine. And so this is, in a sense, what we see at the end of the book of Malachi. It ends with this test and this promise that God will bless us abundantly. But what we know at the end of Malachi is this, is that there's actually 400 years of silence the question is, what happened in this moment where actually God says to test me? And now suddenly, there's this 400 years of silence. What happens to God's faithfulness and his promises? You know, once we trust in God, we think that immediately that there's something that should become realized. That we should be materially blessed. And in the story that I shared, yes, that that happened. But that doesn't happen all the time. And we see this here in Malachi. That this test that God is saying to test me. It's a promise that God is saying he's going to fulfill later. After 400 years. That the tithe and offering, what happens is that Abraham gives doesn't result immediately in seeing the fulfillment of God's promise during his day. It's the same with Moses and all the prophets and the priests. There is something that in that moment that they receive and they see, but not the ultimate fulfillment of God, what God was promising, that ultimately that what they had given and what they had established and what they had done in terms of serving that ultimately it was pointing to what God would do 400 years later after Malachi where God fulfills the promise that he gives in Jesus Christ. And because of their faithfulness, what happens is that we receive what they didn't at that time. 
Even though they didn't get to see it in their day, they now get to see and participate with all the saints and seeing the fulfillment of God's promises and blessings because they believed. And it's the same for you and I, that our giving is not about us, but it's about God's promise being fulfilled for generations to come. And there will be a day when we will see in heaven the fulfillment of all those promises. The question is whether or not we believe it right now. Not necessarily would we see it today, but maybe in the next generation, or maybe not even that, in a generation after, or when we see Christ once again. So this question is, once again, why do we take offering in the middle of service? I believe that it's because it gives us an opportunity Sunday after Sunday, week after week, where we actually hold in our hands either a check, whether it's cash. I know that nowadays we don't. Maybe our phones to actually say, God, I choose you. God, I choose you. I choose you, God, more than actually eating out more than maybe new shoes, more than a new car or new clothes, or maybe even a new home, that I choose you. That every Sunday we have this opportunity to say to God, God, I choose you, that I love you, that it's not my company or this world or money in which I serve, but it's ultimately you and no one else. That Jesus ultimately fulfills this law of the giving of tithes and offerings. And this is what we see as we conclude in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, where Paul, Apostle Paul says, and Jesus says that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That in the Old Testament, there's a sense of, uh, uh, of an amount, of a set amount that we give, but now in Jesus Christ, he says now our giving is not necessarily in terms of a limit in which we give, that we need to give according to the law 10%, even though that's still into effect. But Jesus is saying that we don't follow necessarily the law in itself, but why we give is not because we're forced to give or under compulsion, but we, begin, we give because of the overflow of our hearts that we're thankful, that we recognize that God and what he has done and what he has given to us. And we give as a result of that. And so every single week when we come to church, that what is happening and why I'm sharing this is is that there's something that as an English ministry we're going to do that we haven't up to this point now, I don't know if you, everybody knows this, but up to this point, we've never done this before, but this is the first time that's happening in the English ministry is actually we are officially going to track our giving. So we received a brand new link that's separate, and so the new link that you actually see is tracking the amount as a congregation, how much we're giving in terms of our tithes and offering. And it's not necessarily to track individuals, but it's actually as a congregation in order to see where we are in terms of our spiritual health. And also to help the church to gauge, in a sense, our stewardship. Because in a sense, the more that I believe we give, the more that God entrusts us with. Because if we're faithful with a little, I believe that God will be faithful and will give us much more that we will be faithful with much. And this will allow us, in a sense, to take ownership of different ministries throughout the church and we'll be able to even raise funds for specific ministries as well as to help local 
and global communities. So starting next week, what you're going to begin to see is that we're going to have QR codes that are in the back of every chair. And when we have a time of offering, we're going to be given a chance to be faced every week to say, God, I choose you in my giving. And it's in a sense where we take a time to examine our hearts, that not based on a certain amount that because we have to give, but because we desire and we want to from the overflow of our hearts because of what Christ has done for us. I know that in the Asian church, a lot of times offering seems like a funeral. A lot of times it's very solemn, and it's like we are saying goodbye to a loved one. You know, when our team was in Togo, Africa, it was just amazing to see the time of offering. I think that was the thing where most team members, we were amazed, was when it was a time of offering, everybody got up and they started dancing as they're walking up to the offering, uh, you know, the offering plate, and they're just giving joyfully. They're singing and rejoicing. I remember also attending uh, a church in Texas that this church was called the Potter's House African American Church. Time of offering is amazing. They had the worship leader and everybody just standing up and saying, stand up! And everybody took out their offering and they're, they're like waving at the air like, oh yeah, hallelujah! And they're all just dancing and they're just celebrating and they're singing. Now I'm not saying that we need to do the same thing where we need to wave our money in the air and start jumping up and down. But giving of tithes and offerings should be something that is joyous that is not a burden that we gladly give out of the thankfulness of our hearts because we recognize what God has done for us, that God did not withhold anything from us, that ultimately what we are giving is giving back to what God has blessed us and given to us, and that God charges us to be good stewards in how we use that for God's glory and for God's kingdom because ultimately God gave us everything and he gave that example through his son where he gave willingly and joyfully and freely so that we could experience the love of God and not just for us but to share that love with others where we reconcile our relationship with God and with one another and so let's take this time to come before the Lord in prayer and as the worship team comes up again it doesn't have to necessarily be a time of when we're giving tithes and offering. But even at this moment, we have a time to respond. And so I'm going to also ask the prayer team to come up as well, that if there's something that you're wrestling with in your heart that God is asking you to either let go or that you see that it's an idol, that it's the same idea and the concept in terms of tithes and offering, what is it that you're holding on to that you say that I'm not able to let go? that is hindering you from coming before God. And at this time that there's an opportunity for you to able to be able to let go and to receive the greatest gift with his Christ himself to experience the fullness and the joy that God gives to us. So what is it in your life that you struggle with, that you're wrestling with, that is controlling your life in your thoughts, your emotions, your actions, that you need to be able to be released, to experience deliverance, to experience the blessings that God wants to pour upon you. It only begins when we come before the Lord and turn to Him that God promises that when we return to Him, He will return to us. And He says that 
I promise you that I will bless you abundantly and you would receive all that I have given to you and will give to you. So let's take this time as we respond in prayer and in worship that there are people who want to come up to be prayed for, that you want to share or even to confess and to be prayed over that this is an opportunity for you to come up at this time. And so as we worship, as we pray, let's continue to come before the Lord at this time.